If vacillation dwell with the heart, the soul will rue it. Shame and honor clash where the courage of a steadfast man is motley like the magpie. But such a man may yet make merry, for heaven and hell have equal part in him. Infidelity's friend is black all over and takes on a murky hue, while the man of loyal temper holds to the white. This winged comparison is too swift for unripe wits. They lack the power to grasp it, for it will wrench past them like a startled hare. So it is with a dull mirror or a blind man's dream. These reveal faces in dim outline, but the dark image does not abide. It gives but a moment's joy. Who tweaks my palm where never a hair did grow? He would have learnt close grips indeed. Were I to cry, oh, in fear of that, it would mark me as a fool. Shall I find loyalty where it must vanish? Like fire in a well or dew in the sun? On the other hand, I have yet to meet a man so wise that he would not gladly know what guidance this story requires, what edification it brings. The tale never loses heart, but flees and pursues, turn tails and wheels to attack and doles out blame and praise. The man who follows all these vicissitudes and neither sits too long nor goes astray, and otherwise knows where he stands, has been well served by Mother Wit. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, May 17th, 2021, and today for 42 Minutes, we will embark upon an embodied holy journey between two worlds. Sound foolish? Well, that's how one finds the path, or so says the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artris in her latest book, The Path of the Holy Fool, How the Labyrinth Ignites Our Visionary Powers. From the author of Walking a Sacred Path comes a number one new release in the Psychology of Creativity and Genius, November 2020, published by Rose Petal Press. The Path of the Holy Fool summons each of us to become a holy fool, one who is accountable, stands for equality and social justice, embraces an ecological vision, and encourages community spirit. Lauren Artris, who established the two permanent labyrinths at Grace Cathedral, San Francisco, is a leading force in the labyrinth movement. Her new book, The Path of the Holy Fool, expands upon her earlier work in Walking a Sacred Path. Through the Parsifal story, Artris suggests the labyrinth serves as a grail that is discovered in the invisible, imaginative, in-between world symbolized by the grail castle. Most importantly, this book invites readers to explore and reflect upon their own uniquely configured imaginations. It is through the imagination that self-reflection and raw experiences of the holy occur. Once we navigate our imaginative process without fear, the labyrinth experience ignites our creativity, heals our wounds, and opens our big picture vision that nurtures empathy and gives us eyes to see and hear. Even through the sorrows of the pandemic, the call for a life-enhancing future. The labyrinth offers the holy fool an unwavering path as we learn to take risks, create new modalities, and find ways to contribute to our evolving world. 
Author and teacher, the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artris is a spiritual director, marriage and family therapist, and canon emeritus at Grace Cathedral and founder of Veritas, a nonprofit dedicated to introducing people to the healing, meditative powers of the labyrinth. We first met her back in 2014 for episode number 132. More information about her can be found at her website, laurenartris.com, including a link to the worldwide labyrinth finder. It truly is a great honor to be welcoming Dr. Artris back to the show again. How are you doing this morning? Very good. Very good. It's hard to believe it's May and we seem to be coming out of the uh, pandemic in a hopefully a smooth way. We'll find that out in the future. So uh, things are looking up. <laughs> well, they are, and and I want I want to stay hopeful. But let's let's start in a less hopeful place, the wasteland, which is one of the important themes of this book. Um, the thing that is really curious to me, this book seems both more personal and more political than your last one, but it also seems that you wrote it. Uh, I know publishing sometimes takes a little while for things to turn around. When did you when did you start writing this book? Well, uh, truth be told, uh, in about two thousand two. Oh and wow! Yeah, that far back. There's there's pieces of those uh, chapters in this one, um, and what I learned over the years is I really didn't have the experience and the words to be able to talk about okay how the labyrinth ignites your visionary powers. Uh, you know, that's a pretty hefty topic. Um, and it really guided me into the whole sense of, well, how do we use our imaginations and how are our imaginations functioning, especially during an oppressive time, uh, both the pandemic and it. I, I agree with you. The book is a little more political broadly, but still because so, so much agony around, wow, where is our country going? And so the Parsifal story that brings in the wasteland was really helpful metaphor. When did you come to the Parsifal story? Well, um, actually through, I think it was 2005, that started putting things together for me. I heard a storyteller, Liz Warren, uh, tell it at a, actually a Labyrinth Society a gathering. And so it was an oral story first that she was telling, and of course the, the search for the Holy Grail those are very early stories. Um, I can say more about that. But then uh, some friend emailed me a book called The Speech of the Grail. And by that time, I was lecturing and talking and traveling internationally. And then I realized, well, that's what happened to me, The Speech of the Grail. That once you get connected to a grail, and I'm saying clearly in the book, the labyrinth can be a grail, not the grail. And there's many grails in the world. People can find and connect to yoga or cooking or anything that helps suddenly bring everything into focus. And as you know, the labyrinth is great at that. Something that you stress in the book is that, um, that the labyrinth is between two worlds. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yes. Um, the labyrinth allows you, I mean, it teaches a method of walking meditation. And uh, the walking part is important, especially for so many people who feel like they're failed meditators. You know, failed meditators means you can't do sitting meditation. And one of the good news pieces of what's happening right now is we're talking about mindfulness, but we're talking about it very 
broadly. So a meditation could be knitting, a meditation could be photography, something that takes you out of your momentary sense of time into a place that you have this feeling you lose time. Wow, where did it go? Where did this hour go? And you realize you were so focused and so fascinating that you kind of, you entered into a in-between realm. And of course, walking the labyrinth can take you there as well. You just line up with your energy, line up with the motion, you know, that's what produces synchronicity. Everything becomes into alignment as you follow and fall into your natural rhythms. Uh, and that takes you to that in-between world where suddenly you can use your imagination in an active imagination way. Uh, you can solve uh, and look at a problem like a Rubik's Cube, turning it over in your mind to see what you're missing or what you need to discover. So that in-between world is really an, an important place to be. Uh, you know, athlete, athletes call it in the zone. Uh, we haven't, in the spiritual uh, community, we haven't named it that quite, but just really coming into quiet, coming into presence. And how is that like the Grail Castle? Well, the Grail Castle is invisible, and you kind of stumble along to find it. And uh, it appears when you least expect it, and you can't... You can't have it quite be a goal. You've got to follow your gut instincts to find it. And for us nowadays, um, holy fools need to follow their gut instincts to find out what is going to speak to them and allow them to be, um, you know, step into that realm that is scary, frankly, because you don't want to control it. You can't control it. If you step in with your ego and say, oh, wow, I just had a great insight. You know, it vanishes just like the Grail Castle. Um, and so Parsifal has to, in the story, Parsifal has to ask the question. He has to use the verbal channel, but ask a question that comes from compassion in his heart. And, and then the Grail Castle appears. Well, so I just recently read Ulysses, and I feel like this was the first time that I got some comprehension out of it. But I was thinking about when James Joyce wrote it, he was able to see um, both Bloom's perspective and Stephen Dedalus's perspective, so the young man and the older man. I'm wondering if you've thought about the, the Grail King and Parsifal being uh, different aspects of like a, your, your, your own being. Sure, sure, and and I would call that more of a Jungian way of understanding it, which I, you know, certainly adhere to. Um, you know, how do we earn, in a way, how do we earn the crown, or how are we knighted? Uh, and you know, those can sound old-fashioned, but how do we step into who we fully are? And uh, that's what happens with Parsifal and and stepping into who he fully is, and then he becomes the grail king. Um, and of course the grail uh, is something that serves the person. That, that you know, the three questions that came out of this, uh, the story, and what, the last one is, whom does the grail serve? And that's kind of a conundrum, that, that servers, the grail serves 
the servers of the grail. And it's like, what, huh? What? What's that? But that the grail serves the person searching for the grail or in the grail, in service of the grail. Let's put it that way. Could you relate those three questions? That uh, come sure. out of, the, yeah, yeah that, that came out over the, over the centuries. Let me say a little bit about the background, uh, Doug, if that's all right. That these yeah. stories were oral stories. Uh, probably from the Celtic tradition early on. And then in both countries, it's interesting how this happens, around the same time, both in France, uh, Christian de Toy, and uh, in Germany, uh, uh, Wolfgang uh, Eschenbach, Eschenbach um, both started gathering these stories. So they were uh, throughout what would be called loosely Europe at that time. And then they started writing these stories down. And that's what the collection of these stories is. So there's many different uh, streams to the story. One is Parsifal, one is Sir Lancelot, the other is Galahad, um, you see. So it's a very large body of, of work. And I don't pretend to be a scholar so much of that as, as using the story and telling the story. Um, because I think that people are looking for ways to be able to understand how the labyrinth uh, takes them to that in-between world, and also how the labyrinth seems to help people find their path, find their journey. And so the three questions that come out of the story are, the first one is, how, what ails thee? You know, and the question, what ails thee, king? Uh, Parsifal finally asks on his second visit, which is not the failure of the first visit to the Grail Castle. Um, so what ails thee? Uh, and that's such an important question for all of us to ask ourselves uh, and also in the wasteland to ask, well, OK, what ails us in this land that we're in uh, and the global, of course, land, meaning the world as well, the earth? Um, and the second question is, how can I help? But the second question is tricky, you know, because help can be so um, condescending. It can be so unhelpful in the long run, but it feels good to the giver in the in the uh, moment he's the person's giving. Uh, so how can I help is a really much deeper question that really each of us who wants to be of service needs to explore. And then the third, as I mentioned, is who, whom does the grail serve? Uh, and the answer is obvious. Uh, the, the answer is answered in the story, but but it's it's it's, it's almost a, a Buddhist cone. A Zen cone, mm -hmm. you know, the grail serves the servers of the grail. Well, when I first became acquainted with the labyrinth, and I don't know that this was ever articulated, I kind of just jumped to the conclusion that the grail was the touchstone at the center of the labyrinth. Have you ah. ever thought it? Yeah. Ah. Well, um, you know, certainly people... Uh, find the center meaningful. I mean, it grounds people. It, it You know, you've done this, and I'm, we're assuming that your your audience knows what a, a labyrinth is. Well, let's uh, talk about that a little bit, just yeah. just in case. Yeah. A labyrinth is a usually a circular form, not always, and it has one path that leads from the outer edge in a very circuitous way to center. And the walker usually walks in, takes time in the center, sits, stands, stays as long as you want, and then follows the same path back out. 
And so just to kind of etch this in your listener's mind, um, the labyrinth that I use and is really my heart song is the labyrinth from Chartres Cathedral. And see, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, 23 cathedrals had labyrinths. And nobody knows why. Isn't that interesting? Nobody knows why. Now, at Chartres, um, the labyrinth had been closed for about 250 years. Uh, right after the French Revolution, they moved chairs into the cathedral. Of course, don't forget all the cathedrals. Roman Catholicism was kicked out of the country. All the uh, cathedrals were turned into temples of reason. And so uh, they moved chairs in. The labyrinth was covered up. It was forgotten. Uh, it's o the one only, there's two only in the remaining form. One is very damaged in uh uh, my French is terrible, so I'm just going to say it in English. San Quentin uh, is a, a cathedral in France, but it's in very bad condition. You feel terrible walking it because you're destroying it as you do. But the Chartres Labyrinth is retained and uh, and in good, fairly good shape, uh, put there in 2001. Uh, two, yeah, uh, 1201, 1201, not 2001, 12. <laughs> it's all eight, 900 years old. And that pattern, um, again, people don't know why it's there, but um, the understanding was that these great cathedrals were all teaching tools to an illiterate population. Nobody read during those times, except probably the aristocracy and the, you know, the lawyers and the clergy. And so the cathedrals became teaching tools. And so you have the stories in the stained glass window and you have the, the statues that say, oh, here's, you know, St. Thomas and St. Anthony and all of these saints. Um, Anne, um, Mary's mother. And um, so this was a way then people would say, the officials of Chartres would now say today, that it was a way of teaching the illiterate pilgrim the journey to God. It's the path is very narrow. It's not. It's very circuitous. And you know, in the Christian scriptures, it says that you know the path is narrow and straight. Well, straight is S T R A I T, like the Strait of Magellan, meaning a challenge. It's not straight like the opposite of curved. It's straight. It's difficult. It's challenging. And that's true of a labyrinth as well. So getting to the center means many, it, it's probably, Doug, as, as, like your interpretation of it's getting to the grail, um, everyone has an interpretation if, they, if they're reflecting on it, if they're allowing themselves to reflect on their experience while they walk the labyrinth. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that you could interpret it as the point of the labyrinth is to get to the center, but then the same thing with Parsifal, the point is the journey to get, you know, you you need that whole journey to arrive at the Grail Castle a second time. To, yes. to get yeah. 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 And you know, and, and some of some some of the um a story is, you know, sometimes we arrive at a place too early in our lives and we don't know what it is. And that's what happens to Parsifal. He's, he's ignorant. He's, you know, still coming out of its self-absorption from being raised in isolation in the country. And so 
lo and behold, there he is, uh, discovering it and not knowing that he needed to ask a question of this king that's brought out on a stretcher and sat down on the floor to eat dinner. <laughs> but, you know, it, it would be it would be poignant to <laughs> think, wow, I'm not going to ask what's going on here. <laughs> and that's what <laughs> happens to Parsifal. So one of the other names you invoke in this book is Joseph Campbell, and I recall him um, relating that this time when... So there's a lot going on at this time when you have the Gothic cathedrals and the labyrinths, uh, the figure like Hildegard von Bingen. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's something in the water where the troubadours are, are creating like almost, almost a new relationship to being... Um, boy, I don't know where the question is here, but, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a lot going on at that time. And, and actually the Roman church was really sinking its roots in deeply in Europe and becoming more regulated. Uh, Hildegard of Bingham was not, um, uh, canonized, not made a saint until when? 2014, right? 2014. Um, in our lifetimes. She should have been made a saint in 1236, but they were formalizing everything and they, quote, lost the papers. <laughs> but <laughs> wouldn't she be considered a witch at some point in our, you know, past? You know, so we went through this moment then where the the relationship to the divine was much different than it became later when we got a little more tightly wound, maybe around the, I don't know, you know, when we're killing witches and stuff. Well, I, I think, I mean, that's one of the points about um, the fact that the Grail story was very popular uh, throughout the pilgrimage routes and in the courts of France. It's fascinating. And at the same time, the church is taking over and, you know, offering this metaphor, you've got to be perfect, you've got to work your way into heaven and be a good person, which means, of course, uh, you know, be a good churchgoer you know, do your tithes and your prayers and your alms and all of that. And at the same time, this grail story about the journey, which is an entirely different metaphor. It's about the journey, like you said. It's about the journey. It's not about being perfect. It's not about climbing any ladder. It's about meeting people on the path and and being present to your journey. Well, so it's interesting because... I've spent a little bit of time with Eschenbach's Parsifal, but I don't. I, it's one of those things where I don't know that I've read the whole thing through. I've uh -huh. definitely listened to Joseph Campbell explicate it, but then your interpretation uh, is interesting because you you note that uh, he starts off potentially both a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, this isn't just some little fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I, uh, let's uh, footnote this, but I didn't mean to avoid the question about Hildegard. And I'll come back to that as a witch. I don't believe that she was, but so let's footnote that. <laughs> and, she... um, yes, a rapist and a murderer. Um, and the rapist part, you know, I hate to sound... Uh, unhelpful to our times right now, but that the story sort of leaves that up um, to the reader. Uh, of course, the husband assumes that and, and punishes his wife terribly uh, 
until Parsifal meets them on the uh, pilgrimage route uh, and and apologizes and said, that was me and I'm sorry, I was inappropriate. But see, I think one of the points about Parsifal is he's raised in isolation. His father and his two brothers were killed in war and his mother, and of course, later you find out that he was the king and his mother's the queen, and rushed her youngest son to isolation in the forest and kept him away from everything on purpose. And of course, what you push into the shadow, and Campbell would agree with this, like you're not gonna go out there and learn about war, you're not gonna go out there and learn about being a knight, um, of course, is in the shadow and, and it comes to, Parsifal's attention, but he's very self-absorbed. I mean, he's a handsome, well-trained hunter, uh, but he's also a dud socially. He doesn't know anything uh, of anything. And uh, so the story is about him coming to consciousness. And that's where we are. We have lots of unconscious people on our planet. When look at the way we treat our environment. Um, and all of us, whether we're conscious or not, we're all semi-conscious because we have all—all all of us have a long way to go to really understand uh, the gift of life and the beauty of it, and uh, that we're—we're we're part of the crew on this spaceship. We're not—we're not passengers. We're—we're we're crew, and people don't don't realize that. Well, part of his ignorance is kind of also his boon because it's it's where where the synchronicity comes from where his path manifests underneath his horse's feet and and that's the point of your book yes yeah yeah and and that would be synchronicity yes because uh but also so many people identify with that people on a spiritual journey and a lot of people just sign their their emails to me, clip clop. <laughs> I'm just I'm just clip clopping along, you know. Meaning, take the next step. Take, which is also a great teaching in the labyrinth. Just take the next step, and uh, and the path will appear beneath your feet. Well, so in in the story, that is that's what is is that right? So that. Uh, at, at two times, he's he's by a river or something, and either the Grail King or uh, I can't think of her name. They say, "Just keep coming. There's a bridge down there. Just keep coming." But he doesn't see anything, and it's a leap of faith. Yes, it's a leap of faith, and in, in one way, it's a, it's also a, a clip clop. You know, you actually got to touch the earth. You're not going to jump over it. <laughs> you know, it and the path appears beneath his feet. And I think that's a great metaphor for being on the spiritual journey. Uh, I, you know, as compared to the climbing the ladder of perfection, right? I mean, this is this is about journey. And and when you think about it, and I loved your description about how your podcast started. That's a clip clop story. You know. Well, so yeah, it is, and that's how it felt. You know, mm -hmm. everything was just going according to plan. Yeah. Uh, and even though there wasn't a huge plan out there, there was a plan somewhere coming through, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so now in talking about that, it's reminding me of the Indiana Jones movie where he actually, I, it's the Holy Grail one, I think the third yeah. one, where, and it does such a nice job of illustrating the leap of faith where 
the bridge is hidden. You can't see it and, until he steps on it, and then he can actually see it. And uh -huh. then it, it manifests and is able to walk across the chasm to get to the Holy Grail. That's right, yes. And that, that really is capturing that. Take the next step. Trust. Trust. Take the next step. And uh, so it's a great it's a great analogy. Well, so okay, we'll get back to Hildegard because I don't think she's a witch either. I think she had a really interesting relationship to uh, you know to being. I guess is what you'd say. You know, right? You know, uh -huh. She well, she was protected in in a way. Uh, she because she was a Benedictine sister, but also one of her mentors, who was Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, showed her drawings, her, you know, her visions came through when she was at age 42 on and the rest of her life. She died at 83. Um, and he, Bernardo Clavaux, took the drawings, the images that uh, Hildegard's uh, women in the convent uh, created and took them to Pope Eugenius III. So he was Pope at the time. And he declared Hildegard as a um, the real thing, you know, uh, the real uh, speaking on behalf of uh, God, being a channel, being a conduit. And so that protected her uh, for her lifetime. And uh, but she did. She probably she knew herbs. You know, Hildegard, there's 700 words we can't translate from Hildegard's uh, uh, writings. She wrote 10 books, so there's a lot of it, but uh, but most of them are in the area of healing and herbs. And so she was someone who used heal, uh, herbs and, and all um, so that you could get the feeling of, oh, my God, she must have been a witch. But uh, but she was also protected and and famous in her lifetime. We don't have anybody on the planet right now. Maybe the Dalai Lama. But who's been declared an authentic uh, channel to God. Um, anybody you name? <laughs> well, I primarily learned about her f through her music, which is ah. fabulous too. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. and she felt like she was in the zone and channeling that music as well. Um, her antithons and and her, it's amazing. She wrote the first opera in the Western world. Um, you know, it's like, okay, this, I mean, it, she really is a Dante or, um, um, a Da Vinci, but not recognized because of being a woman. And it was, yeah, I mean, before, so that's the interesting thing. So you're, you really feature the imagination as the important thing in this book. And, you know, she was definitely a proponent of the imagination, Yes, but we think, uh, I mean, think is the right word, because it's all intellect is the way we interact with being, I guess. And so, you know, that mode of being is just so different from like your Descartes, say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everything changed when Descartes somehow got onto the world stage. You know, it's fascinating. Um, and, you know, I would say the wrong idea at the right time you know, directed us toward the intellect. And the intellect, you know, for 400 years has been the only thing. It's still out there functioning and, and just very disconnected. Uh, 
But yeah, Hildegard understood the imagination and we need to understand how our imaginations are functioning because if we don't, we're being manipulated. And um, that and and that happens a lot. But what? Where's the propaganda? We have a lot of propaganda floating around in our in the United States right now. Doesn't mean it's not in other countries too. But you know, we're we're struggling with the big lie, and we're struggling with okay, who did what? And and you know, we need to be clear because the imagination is easily hooked into story if we're not conscious about how our imaginations are being impacted. Well, so the reason why I brought Hildegard back up is um, you've got your name for the Labyrinth Movement, Veritas, from her, and what does that mean, and, and why is that important? Well, uh, you know, I feel like Hildegard is my kind of cosmic grandmother, and uh, <laughs> it helped me along the way, uh, and... Uh, Veritatis is a greening power. Uh, I love Hildegard's definition of the Holy Spirit, which is the greening power of God. And she was a Rhineland mystic. She spent her life in the Rhineland of Germany, watching those grapes grow for 83 years in a row, you know. And so she really saw and embraced a, 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 a ecological understanding uh, of, of our world. And that she respected nature. Yes, she worked with herbs, as we've mentioned. And she really understood that um, the spirit is in nature instead of what the church would say is that it's heretical to say that there's light in, in nature. I don't quite know why. But, you know, as though that's a bad thing and light shouldn't be in light should not be in nature. And so it's a real misunderstanding. And she she took a real clear path on that. Also, her definition of sin is sin is drying up. And that's a fascinating uh, metaphor for us nowadays. Here in California, we just declared stage one of drought. You know, what does it mean to dry up? And people who have just come out of COVID, 15 months of not socializing and not being able to be free in the way they wanted to be. I wonder who who's drying up. And that's a great metaphor, I think, for us to reflect on. Were you able to facilitate labyrinth walks in the pandemic as uh, we were locked down? No, uh, not in person. Uh, I would ordinarily be at Grace Cathedral once a month, and that uh, Grace Cathedral is only opening up this Sunday on Pentecost, May 23rd. So it's a it's a big deal, the weekend of May 23rd. Um, and, that seems like highly charged symbolically, would you say? Uh, would you say to to have the cathedral open for the first time on Pentecost? Yeah, yeah, and uh, still with you know masking and all of that, social distancing sure. and certain numbers and things like that. But they've been really, really cautious. But Doug, what we have done uh, through Veritas and our executive uh, director and our board came up with the idea of, well, do online uh, handheld walks. So handheld labyrinths, uh, Fridays, uh, we offer it still, and we're probably going to continue it uh, at 12 noon 
for the for the Pacific Rim and then four o'clock for uh, the UK and we alternated the other week. But for Europe and the UK and and hundreds of people join us weekly. And so we just do a handheld labyrinth walk. We select a theme. We have different presenters selecting a theme and then doing a labyrinth walk. And then there's about 20 minutes of, of re, re, uh, responses and comments. And it's been really successful. So it's one of those things that, well, you know, Zoom and Skype and all these ways of being able to get together are uh, really uh, important and, and have found their way into our culture in a, in a more direct way. Well, so Hildegard was watching the grapes grow for 83 years. And of course, we, uh, with technology, we get different um, vantage points. And one of the vantage points that you settle on in, in the book is this idea of Earthrise. Could yeah. you speak about that a little bit and why sure. that is, you know, in some ways your touchstone for the future? Yes, because, you know, that whole sense of without a vision, you'll perish. And and we don't any longer share a collective vision. Uh, and we're struggling around everything, you know, even even looking at how, um, you know, how we handle COVID. Uh, it was uh, Thomas Aquinas who came up with the concept of for the common good, for the common good. And we have lost sight of for the common good, you know, and like with COVID, the whole thing of we're all in this together, that's good news. And that's really bad news. <laughs> so because we're all in it together. So Earthrise is a suggestion of a vision. I'm not the first one by any means to suggest this, but uh, but it's it gives us an image, the uh, 1968 photo of the Earth from the Apollo spaceship taken on Christmas Eve. That image is something that has, the world has seen, probably every human being on the planet has seen this, our planet, our fragile blue island, a uh, blue-green island, um, and so it can, and I think it is, stirring the imagination. And it offers us a way of being able to understand. And one is uh, certainly ecological consciousness, ecological awareness. That we humans, we always, you know, kind of make fun of, uh, you know, the elephants that tear up their own environment or, you know, ha, 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 in the Middle Ages, people... Um, poisoned themselves by putting tomatoes in pewter, and they didn't know that that was a toxic combination. And here we are; we're doing the same thing. Uh, we're we're you know burning things up and tearing our trees up and our Everglades, and without any awareness. And so to have Earthrise as a way of understanding that the Earth needs to rise, it's going to rise in a way against us if we really don't shift. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits of COVID with no traffic for 15 months or maybe 12 months, you know, it picked, it's picking up gradually, but with no traffic, you know, birds are singing and everything is healthier. Uh, and I, I find hope in that because that the environment could respond that quickly, uh, to a change like that, uh, taking the carbon dioxide out of the air. Had, have you noticed um, uh, where you're at, you know, the, a differing level of pollution in the air? Oh, definitely. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm outside, you know, I'm about 20 miles outside of San Francisco and uh, pretty much in, uh, you know, beautiful vegetation, lovely hills and trees. And and you could hear traffic in the morning. Still, even now, you can't hear that, you know, in the very distant kind of like a rain shower or something. Um, but yes, birds have sprung back because we have people who count birds are around us and are definitely saying that. Um, and that's the main thing that people have noticed that birds have become uh, much more prolific. Um, so, you know, it just is a little hint that, wow, if we change things, things will change. And, and that's part of the holy fool, you know. we got to step forward and do what we can. What, so the other side of this coin is it was only just last summer, I think, that we were seeing all those horrific pictures out of San Francisco with the fires, like some of the mm-hmm. worst fires in California ever. Absolutely. Sure, it, that's not the other side of the coin. That's what's happening. That is what's happening. And so... How do we end drought? So we have drought now, and we are expecting a wildfire season again. Um, And that's what we're up against. And that's why we need a much more ecological awareness about, okay, what are we doing? And, uh, And to our planet, we're tearing up our environment. And so you think part of the answer is imagination to this conundrum? Well, we have to see what we're doing. You know, we have to see, we have to see that, uh, wow, okay, um, uh, drought is injuring our trees, yes, and the trees are much more susceptible to kindling. Uh, but also, we have to see that, you know, hurricanes have increased, tornadoes are increasing, earthquakes are coming about more more in the middle of the United States than ever before, partly, I guess, because of fracking. See, so we need to be able to see, wow, what would it look like? What would it look like if we had ecological consciousness? What would it look like? We could have Earthrise. What would that mean? People would be healthy. They'd be eating great food that may be growing publicly. I use the example of um, Incredible Edible at the end of the book. Uh, Mary Clear just planting food anywhere. Anywhere it'll grow. Against the law, of course. But, you know, and why is it against the law, you know? Yeah. So to imagine something different. So then the the book has only been out for a, a little bit. I think it came out last November. Yeah. Uh, wh- what direction are you headed now for the near future? Well, um, uh, we're continuing on. We're actually opening uh, on Zoom in June, uh, I'm going to be doing a, um, a virtual pilgrimage. You know, every year we went to Chart twice, once if not twice, and had our faculty people there and, you know, to, and does sem- do seminars and teach people about the cathedral and, and all. And, you know, a pilgrimage is, is sometimes it involves travel, but it certainly involves reflection on the journey. And so we're doing it virtually in June. And... Um, we want to get back to France. We want to get back to Chart. We are training. We train many more people on Zoom. So we train someone in Nigeria and a couple people in Thailand. And so Labyrinths are in 88 countries. And I think just to keep expanding 
and also just keep training people so labyrinths uh, can come into human awareness. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. All right. Thanks, Doug. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Dr. Lauren Artris on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about her work, check out her website, laurenartris.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And just one step at a time, clip-clop, clip-clop. <laughs>